Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we sat down with Joe Wagner. On the off chance you're not familiar with the name, I guarantee you, you are familiar with the portfolio of wines. He is responsible for changing the way a lot of people view California Pinot Noir today. It was a great conversation. I love every time I talk to him, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Don't forget, click subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Cheers. And we're live. We're live. Gentlemen, how Hello. are you? Hey. Doing good. Joe Thanks Wagner. Me. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. You're a, uh, right. you're a busy man right now. Uh, Post-COVID and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. There's a, a lot to do. Uh, as long as we're able to get, you know, more wines out there and people are enjoying them, then I think uh, it's, all, it's all worth it. <laughs> I think that enjoying them is probably the understatement of the century, I would imagine. <laughs> I, I didn't realize, I've run wine lists uh, in restaurants for a long time. I didn't realize until I went to work retail just how much people love your whole collection of wines uh-huh. uh, across the board. Um, we, I made a joke early on. I said, that there, you couldn't kill Joe's wines if you tried to. <laughs> you couldn't do anything to stop them. Well, thank. That's very. That's very nice. I'm, I'm glad people like them. I think that you know our philosophy is very simple. It's uh, when we're blending, we're we're blending for our personal tastes. You know, just as as much as anything else. But um, we're never focused on the critics. Uh, I don't worry about that. I figure I'm an American. Uh, everybody on my team is an American, and we all grew up with something maybe of a similar palate. Um, but uh, but if it tastes better to me and and the rest of the team. I think that it's going to be a, a style that's going to resonate with the general public here in America, and uh, that's what's that's what's you know brought us our success, and that's what we continue to you know hang our hat on. But uh, when people drink their drink the wines and love them, I mean that's there's there's no uh, no better feeling than than knowing that people are enjoying your wines and it's hopefully making a difference in their daily lives. So, I do want to touch on a couple of things. Uh, one, if I'm understanding correctly. You launched Bell Gloss before you were even old enough to drink. Is that right? That is true. <laughs> you, yes. You you kind of smashed right out the yeah. gate. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And it was it was you know you're legally people don't know this but you can legally produce alcoholic products right wine spirits beer before you're 21 years old you just can't consume them legally so that's that's the interesting part but yeah uh, yeah so I started uh, about 19 years old and so. As you started, you started with Bell Gloss, you moved on to uh, Naomi and, and kind of just became a household name. I would imagine there's been no greater name in the world of Pinot Noir. I mean, you have really changed the landscape. Yeah, changed it completely. We see other people's styles changing because of your style. Of, well, of Pinot you. Noir across Very the nice. board. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can't be blind to that fact, right? I mean, you have to acknowledge that's completely changed. I mean, I would, I would think that maybe it's... Uh, not so much trying to emulate our style, but I think that people see that the general public, like, I, I always go back to uh, everybody in, in Napa Valley that was producing Cabernet in the 60s and 70s, they were trying to emulate Bordeaux, because that was, that was like the end-all be-all, right? And then they realized that Napa Valley had its own terroir. Pinot Noir went through the same thing, and in many cases, it's still going through that. So I think that whether it's people looking at our wine saying that, you know, yeah, I want it to taste more like that, or it's just a simple fact of, I do think people like the style of a richer, bolder Pinot Noir, and so they're maybe following the market, right? More, more so than anything. But uh, it's you know, it, in the beginning days, um, it was actually tough. You know, I believed in what we were doing. 
Um, but my first couple releases were, were, I had like three vintages that were sub 80 points. Wow. Like 76, 77, 78 points. Like those are undrinkable scores. And, uh, and the wines weren't too dissimilar from what they are now. And it was just a reflection of the expectation of that time was that it needed to be light, high acid, etc. And And after consumers started to be the ones, that, it was the customers that told us, keep doing what you're doing, rather than trying to pander to the critics. And, uh, and, and they're, you know, they're, them voting with their pocketbook is what, you know, gave us the belief that we're going the right way, the, the right way with this. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think that um, more people have evolved into honoring Mother Nature and what Mother Nature gives you, more so than trying to emulate an area or another style of wine. Um, and I think, that, uh, I think that that's good for everybody that loves wine. So what gave you that at such a young age? What, what like knowing you your said, yeah, your family was in the this business. This is what so people are going to gravitate. Like, yes. did your dad go go prune those vines or go, you know? Oh, well, he started me in the vineyard at around 12. Yeah. Um, and then when I got into my teens, I was able to work around the winery. Um, and so I knew, I knew what I was doing uh, to a large degree. Planted my first vineyard at 15 um, <laughs> on, the, on the far Sonoma coast. Spent a, I spent a summer out there with this guy, Charlie Pina, who was like maybe 25. Him and I just lived on the property. It was 10 acres. Uh, he'd, he'd buy me beer. I was 15, and we were smoking <laughs> a bunch of weed and and planting this vineyard. It's still the Taylor Lane vineyard. I ended up buying it. Yeah, it was a yeah. lease. No shit. That's uh, a Taylor Lane and that's vineyard. That's Taylor Lane vineyard. So that's got a, right. that, that one's close to my heart. But uh, yeah, my dad, you know, he he pushed me to always try new things. Um, and uh, But he also exposed me to the, the breadth of, like, say, Pinot Noir, right? We were tasting some of the most obscure, crazy, like, super light pinots that would almost be more like rosé um, all the way up to the Costa Browns and Pizzonis that are much richer in style and and I was I, I remember tasting those wines and I was like this is kind of this is where I want to go something more like this and uh, and it was you know McPhail, Costa Brown, Pizzoni they were great wines they were all young brands but they were doing some awesome stuff and um, and we ended up kind of you know taking that that you know guiding light of style and then evolving to what we wanted, what we just, you know, over time uh, learned how to do and, and created, I think, a, um, a different style of, of Pinot Noir. Yeah. And, you, you know, you're, I mean, bottom line, you're a farmer, right? I mean, yep. you so know. we started I mean, in, that's what we still do. And, and yeah. still farm. This is, this is just a, a hobby. The farming is the real work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, somebody at your family's winery said to me one time, you can't make good wine. If you don't go good, good grapes, yeah. and that's the bottom line, right? Absolutely. And so, what drives you now to like? Are you always looking for vineyard sites? Or are you, you know, yeah, are you so the, the sale of you know, Mayomi was a very successful brand. We sold it in 2015. Um, one of the main reasons for go ahead and going ahead and taking that deal was um, I, I never really made any money prior to that. We didn't have enough money. It was always going back to building the brand, right? So all of our revenue would just be cycled back in and it became a monster brand. And I was like, this is not what I got into this business for. It was great to have the success. Um, but I looked at it and said, you know, on one hand, I've got the opportunity to, you know, create this, you know, multi-million case brand, or I can sell this brand and buy land and continue farming, invest in our facilities for winemaking, um, and bring all of these kind of dreams that I had to fruition. Uh, so we went ahead and took the deal and uh, got right back into farming. We were already farming like a thousand acres back then. and. Now we've gone up to about four, um, so continue to, um, you know, purchase and, and plant more land, and uh, hopefully just continue to sustain our own growth with all of our own internally grown fruit. Hmm. 
One thing that I do notice, and, and you touched on it down there, and I, I wanted to ask about it, but uh, I wanted to save the questions for here. Uh, you are, all of your wines across the board have been remarkable, remarkably consistent year after year. I mean, there's very little variation, and they're, they're constantly great. How do you do that? How do you maintain that? Uh, when so, I mean, so many other wineries have, you know, big variation year yeah. to year. Well, thank you for that, because that's something we really do pride ourselves on uh, a lot is, is consistency, because vintage variation does happen. Um, but more often than not, that is a byproduct of uh, picking based off of sugars alone. And I think that's that's the important part, and that's where our name Copper Cane came from, was that it's about the physiological maturity of the vine um, in any given season and the grapes. Um, and that tells us when to pick. And we'll get variation from vintage to vintage, on alcohol, but the style and character of the wine maintains. And I think that's the most important part. Um, you know, picking based on sugar is just so easy though, because it's, it is such a, you know, there, there's, there's something common there where it's, it's an easy one to call out, say it's 25 bricks, 26 bricks or whatever, time to pick. Um, and if you're, if you're purchasing grapes or, you know, from a grower, they need something tactile like that. Um, and so, so when I look at it, I just think that's, it's not something we need to adhere to. And if we're looking for consistency in every vintage, um, which which is something that is not like, you know, I think it's underappreciated in the wine business in general. <laughs> I like consistency um, and it's something that we do, we do strive for. And I, I think it really all stems from just that philosophy of copper cane and when we harvest. Well, it's uh, definitely shows it. I, I was joking about it with his dad. I think, by the way, his dad's probably the biggest copper cane fan in the world. I, we joke <laughs> so often true. that we're going to get rid of every other wine and just sell Joe's wine we, uh, all the time. But uh, we were talking about it in the shop the other day. When's the last time you had a bad bottle of quilt? It just it hasn't happened. There's not. It doesn't happen. Well, that's, that's <laughs> great to hear. A bad vintage. I haven't had one myself. <laughs> <laughs> They're consistent uh, year after year. So. Uh, you're definitely killing it there. What was the move with moving into Oregon? I mean, that had to be a big change for you as a California Yeah, family. I actually, I started looking at Oregon back in 2006, just out of curiosity, because I felt, you know, I'd grown grapes, made wine throughout California's coast, and just thought, you know, what, what would it be like up there? And I actually almost bought a property up in Willamette Valley, um, and ended up uh, it ended up falling through because uh, it was I think you got an offer that was that was above mine or something but it was an old hazelnut orchard and I was gonna plant vineyard up there and I'm glad I didn't at that point I was in you know having kids and uh, it was already hard enough to go from Napa all the way down through Santa Barbara and back and be home you know and and it'd be a part of the kids lives so that would have stretched me all the way north as well so we didn't get back up to Oregon about uh, until about two, 2012 and what brought me up there was just curiosity in the first place um, but then when we started making wines it was kind of taking our philosophy of winemaking in California and applying it to Oregon fruit same thing with the grape growing up there um, and I think what it yielded was really a it was it was something that wasn't in the market yet because um, because Oregon really does they adhere to a much more Burgundian philosophy um, and we are seeing now a lot of a lot of actual you know young California winemakers that can't afford to start their business in California are going to Oregon and bringing Absolutely. that philosophy with them. And so you're seeing that landscape of wines in Oregon change really rapidly right now, which I, I welcome. I think it's a great thing because I, I think that uh, Oregon got a little stagnant there. Um, and, and I think that having some, some young blood, some new life up there uh, is going to be doing what, very well for Oregon in general. Um, you have very distinctive pinots, right? And all from different locations, right? And then 
the locations uh, can vary from warmer climate, right, to a little cooler. Yeah. And I'd say I'd say very cold to cool. Very cold. Um, to cool. But uh, you know, like if we grew, like we do the Yulin Lock Vineyard, but that's in Carneros, um, which is part of on, on the Napa Valley side of Carneros. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we were to grow a Pinot in like Okanole or North, like up to Calistoga in a very warm climate. The wines just don't, they're, they're going to be thin. They're not going to have a lot of color, no weight. They're going to um, kind of fall off on acidity, um, very high pH. And so it's that mitigating factor so of, of the coast that keeps us, on average, uh, relatively cool temperatures. So when I say on average over what we call the growing season, right, from uh, bloom to harvest, uh, you're looking at like 70s, maybe high 60s in these areas. Napa Valley is probably high 80s. Um, so, so focusing on those cool areas are, are, are very important, but there are different grades of cool, right? You have stuff that's on the far coast like Taylor Lane, which is going to be in the 60s, and that, that's very marginal. Um, and then you have uh, areas like western, or sorry, uh, eastern Santa Maria Valley, which are going to be closer to the mid to high 70s. And the style of wine you're going to get from that is going to be much more opulent rich. Like we use that vineyard as a great blending component to kind of broaden the palate of uh, the Bowen uh, Pinot Noir. Um, so it, is, it can be used as a tool. But as a standalone, sometimes it may be a little too much. Uh, d- during harvest, is that something that you guys are like having to be on top of your game because you're going to have different fruit coming at different times, or just sometimes it all just all at the same time? Uh, it's there have been times where most of it is at the same time. It <laughs> sucks. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but generally speaking, like during harvest, we might get into doing some harvesting in late August. And then, and then, say second week of September, just we get hammered for like four weeks straight, and then you kind of have the tail end. But um, the beauty of making other other wines is, you know, you have like Pinot Noir to start. I mean, for us, we start with rosé and sparkling at the very earliest, and then you get into Pinot Noir. Um, and then as Pinot Noir is starting to taper off, our Cabernet is starting to get ripe up in Napa, and so it kind of ebbs and flows naturally. But there have been years where it's been like all out, you know, just you know, like almost like you feel like you picked. 75 percent of your crop in two weeks wow and that's a that's a lot <laughs> so you told me years ago and i've tried to relay this story and i i'm sure you can do a much better job than me right now when you talk about these uh pinots and they're very big and they're very uh bold and the color is there the phenolics are incredible and you told me years ago you were using dry ice yes can you talk more to that i've tried to talk about it over the years but yeah i don't think like <laughs> listeners would probably like to know what that would be for yeah so yeah so dry ice um i'll, I'll give you the history on it because this is a, a story that most people don't get to hear um when i started bell gloss i was doing all like half ton and three quarter ton bin fermentations right so they're they're plastic uh, double-walled bins, but they don't have any cooling capacity. You don't have a glycol jacket or anything like that. Right. So if a fermenter got out of hand and temperature came up too rapidly and we're starting to burn through sugar too quickly, we would have to resort to using dry ice to drop our, our temperature down to slow down the fermentation. So we started seeing that those wines were were much darker because um, not every bin, we, we might have been doing four fermenters and only one bin um, had a spike. And so we dropped it down. So we started realizing that the dry ice was actually freezing uh, something in, in that fermenter. So we started to look into it and realize that when you freeze the fruit, at least the skins of the fruit, which is what we focus on, you're, you're actually bursting the cell walls. And if you take a red grape and you just squeeze it, the, the juice is clear. Right. So all of those color compounds and all of the, the phenolic compounds, which are all the mouthfeel components, those are all trapped in the skins. Just about all of them are trapped in the skins. So 
by doing this cryo extraction, by exploding those cell walls, we're able to have a much easier time extracting during fermentation, yielding us much darker, much more mouthfeel-driven wines. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of the core of it. Uh, there's quite a few producers that use it, um, mostly on kind of the cult side, you know, like the the you know hiring cabs that you know about. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, we are the largest. Well, with the exception of the COVID years, we're the largest purchaser of dry ice in the in the state. Wow. Um, and uh, and then COVID kind of took the cake on that because I guess they're using dry ice to back the vaccines. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So now that that's over, we'll probably go back to number one. I don't know, but uh, it it is an integral part of our process, and it really does make a style of wine. I mean, all of the elements play a role, um, but that one element in itself is. It's a good portion of, of, uh, of, that, of that style. Well, I liked what you said earlier. It does add a lot to the mouthfeel. It makes it a little weightier, a little more luscious. I mean, these, these wines are velvet. Beautiful colors. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I know that you're on limited time today, but thank you so much for taking some time and sitting down with us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you guys yeah. for having me. And uh, you guys ever want to do this again, whether out in wine country or, or, uh, or even, you know, over over the internet that's fine with me so <laughs> all right i love talking about wine i love what you guys are doing hey. awesome thank Thanks you so Jack. thank you cheers cheers, cheers.